You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the podcast. And our topic is when Christians were Jews. And our guest is Paula Fredrickson. And uh, she is a scholar who needs no introduction to people who know all this stuff about New Testament scholarship. She um, taught at Boston College. She is emerita at Boston College. And she's also a a distinguished visiting professor at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. She's a widely respected scholar of the origins of Christianity and of Judaism around the time of Jesus and Paul. And uh, yeah, we, we talked about this topic of when... When Christians were Jews, which means the beginning, right? Well, yeah, it's it's really making sure that we contextualize the New Testament in a way that's, I think, faithful to how this whole thing began. And I know it would have been pretty common in my tradition to contrast Christians and Jews as these very separate religions, and that's a mistake whenever you look at the New Testament, how it was written, out of what was it written and I thought Paula did a good job explaining that. Yeah, I mean, there there are different approaches to to understanding the origins of Christianity in the first century with respect to Judaism, because, like like you said, Jared, you know, it's it's almost natural. It's wrong, but it's almost natural for Christians to think, well, you know, Paul and Jesus are Christians, and uh, and then there's Judaism, but of course they were Jews, and so f- in, in in scholarship and the history of thought about this. Sometimes there is that antagonism. So, it's Jesus or Paul against Judaism. And then there's Jesus and Paul, or let's forget Jesus, Paul and Judaism. In other words, they're two separate tracks for how God deals with Jews one way, Gentiles another way. And then there's another view, which is Paul is Jewish, and he operates within a Jewish way of thinking and that affects how we, and we'll get into some of the stuff on the podcast, that affects how we think about uh, all number of things in the New Testament where we don't automatically make a distinction between, well, this is, you know, Jews over here, Jesus over here. I mean, one example, of course, is Jesus debating with the Pharisees and, you know, saying things like, uh, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he's arguing with them in Matthew. And uh, the thing is that as Pharisees, Jesus was probably a Pharisee, politically speaking, and that's what they did. They debated law all the time. So, for Jesus to say, here's my interpretation of the law, and I think it's better than yours, that's a very common Jewish thing to do. That's not Jesus saying Judaism is wrong. That's him actually being Jewish. And things like that are very helpful, I think, to understand about the New Testament. Well, and even when you say Judaism— or, you know, Israelite religion and all, like, those are, we're talking about huge amounts of times, too. So, a few, you know, terms that may be helpful to define, because we talk about Second Temple Judaism and a few other things, I think that might be helpful to define, because, again, we may also talk about uh, the, 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 the historical context of when we're talking about is important, because I think it's easy to say, oh yeah, King David all the way up to the time of Jesus, we trying to think about that like that was like 20 or 30 yeah. years. That was like a thousand <laughs> years. So, right. what particularly is Second Temple Judaism in this context? Well, I mean, in a nutshell, and it is a very important concept uh, for for understanding the New Testament, this, the world of Second Temple Judaism. Solomon b- built the first temple like in the middle of the 10th century, roughly, um, nine-something, and uh, that was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. Uh, the exiles came back in 539. They rebuilt the temple like around 515, 516. Wonderful. That's the beginning of the Second Temple period. And that was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70. That entire period is called the Second Temple period. And it's really important because this is where, where Judaism was really being formed in a sense uh, in, in living in the context of other nations ruling over them in their own land. And a lot of what wind up being just like normal Judaism in Jesus' day, which is a diverse thing, but, you know, things like Pharisees or Sadducees or Essenes or, or other sorts of things like that, that really grew out of this Second Temple period. And this, is, this was marked by Jews continuing the ancient tradition but in a world that's very, very different from the world of David or Solomon or any of the kings that came after that. 
And that's very important because the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament and Jesus himself were not just looking back to the Old Testament. They were part of this Second Temple tradition itself. You know, the Second Temple, if it ends, you know, a rather arbitrary date in a sense, but if it ends in the year 70, this is already the period of Jesus and, you know, maybe one or two Gospels have been written around this time and, you know, a lot of, well, actually all of Paul's letters, because he's probably dead in the mid-60s at some point, a lot of Christianity has already happened in this context of Second Temple Judaism. And, um, it's you cannot actually you cannot study New Testament without also studying along with that the developments of Second Temple Judaism. So so uh, Paula mentions that a lot, right? And she also mentions this guy Josephus, who is uh, a very important figure for the study of Christianity and Judaism in the first century because he was a Jew who was also very friendly with Roman power, and he wrote he wrote books to sort of defend. Judaism to the, you know, the culture powerful elite at the time, and um, and it, he gives insights into what life was like back then, and he's a very important historical source. She also mentions diaspora, I think, too. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that's another term. That, that's probably the last one, but it basically has to do with the spread of of Judaism beyond the boundaries of of the land of Judea, which happened long before the time of Jesus and Paul, but. You know, that's where Paul does missionary journeys. Uh, he meets Jews and Gentiles wherever he goes in the empire. There, there are Jews just all over the place. So, But that's a, that diaspora, that scattering. And one of the big scatterings happened when the temple was destroyed. Because a lot of Jews said, you know, I'm out of here. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what the Romans are going to do next, so we're done. So, so they left there too. But but those are, those are terms that are just thrown around a lot in New Testament scholarship. And, um, and they're important ones. All of them are. Yeah, it was, it was really helpful. The most important thing you said that I'm going to take away is forget Jesus. That's what I heard. <laughs> so, if anyone, you know, that's just my takeaway. But from which I episode. meant, let's focus on Paul because the, the lines are a little bit clearer with Paul because yeah, mm-hmm. he has a, a very overt Gentile kind of mission. And You can try to cover up your sins now I'm if you want. I'm serious, man. All right, let's have this conversation. The identification of Jesus as the Messiah must have happened before his death, or Pilate wouldn't have killed him in the way he does. The bigger claim that he was Messiah, and it must have driven the Romans crazy if they were paying attention, was after he was killed. And it's at that point that you get the movement spreading within late Second Temple Judaism. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. So, let I me mean, let's just talk about that. Let's talk about the let's put it this way, the the, the first 
Can we even say the first Christian community, or should we say the first community of Jesus followers? Before or after the crucifixion. Yeah. Can, can you maybe say why that matters? Like, why would yeah. you ask that question? Yeah. There's an interesting issue about when we can start using the word Christian to understand the followers of Jesus, because if you think about it, Jesus has two phases. One is um, the lead up to the crucifixion, when he had followers. Obviously, he had followers, or he wouldn't have ended up on a cross by the Romans unless he had had followers. But we also know from the Gospel of Matthew itself that not all of Jesus's followers had the experience of his resurrection. We know from 1 Corinthians 15, a letter that Paul writes uh, in the mid, probably in the middle of first century, maybe 20-something years after the crucifixion, that Paul himself gives a list of witnesses to, he says, was seen, that uh, Jesus was seen by, and then he was Peter, and then the twelve. That's already interesting because right. you'd expect him to have 11, but he doesn't know the tradition uh, about there being only 11 disciples by that point. All right, hold on here, Paul. He doesn't know the tradition? Yeah, we'll get into all that stuff. I'm, I'm with you. Oh, yeah, guys. <laughs> okay, so, um, so, and then there are, but when Paul lists the witnesses, he's, he says there were five, some 500 people who, who saw Jesus, but there were many more people in the run-up to the crucifixion that were enthused about him and were who were identifying him as Messiah because these were Jewish pilgrims to Jerusalem at Passover, enthused that particular holiday um, about Jesus and calling him the Messiah, which is why Pilate makes a point of not only crucifying him, which is how the Romans discouraged political insurrection, but putting, um, putting the titulus over the cross saying, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, just to make the point that that, that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. So, but my, the point I wanted to make is that um, Paul says that um, uh, he, first he appeared to Cephas by Cephas, uh, he's indicating Peter. Then he appeared to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren, uh, the the Greek is, um, the word means brothers, but the masculine plural can indicate men and women, just mm-hmm. as it used to be the case in English. Um, then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. 500 people isn't enough people uh, to get somebody crucified in Rome. So there were people who were following Jesus before his death who did not have the experience of his resurrection, and others of them did, including people who didn't know the historical Jesus of Nazareth, like Paul himself. Paul was not among the original 12 apostles. All right, so we have these, you know, a resurrection account in Paul, and that represents Jesus in one sense, one face of Jesus. There's the other face of Jesus where you have the Gospels that have different kinds of resurrection accounts, right? So, so I, I, you, the point you're making is that when you talk about Christian, it really depends if we're talking about followers of Jesus before crucifixion or followers of Jesus after the crucifixion, right? It still takes another uh, 70 years for the term to be used. We have evidence from different documents like the letters of Ignatius, who's somebody who writes in the early decades of the second century of the the use of the word Christian. We have it in the Acts of the Apostles, volume two of the Gospel of Luke, right, is the Acts of the Apostles, probably by the same author. And in that story about, it's sort of the adventures of the apostles after the resurrection. And in that uh, account, the author who's writing at the same time Ignatius is writing says that people began to be called Christians in Antioch. Not that he has, you know, he's the author isn't dating by Anno Domini, right? Nobody's dating Anno Domini. So I don't know what his sense of time is, but he attributes the use of the word to at least a decade after the crucifixion. So, and these are all texts that are written 
sometime probably shortly after 100. So, and there are other texts that cluster in that period. So the use of the word Christian is something that takes time to develop, uh, even as an idea, because that already distinguishes this group from uh, the Jewish followers of Jesus during his own lifetime. So, then if we can go back, so that, that's a good, in my mind, that's a good time frame of, okay, there's a certain time in which the word Christian begins to be used, and that becomes to be a, an, an identity marker of some sort. So, before that time, you know, what what's the evidence maybe that we have from the New Testament for how people were conceiving of this G- Jesus way, or I don't even know how to frame it then at this point, but I do. it seems like Paul is a pretty central figure in this because of Paul's message to non-Jews. How does that square with this being a movement within the Jewish religion? One of the most fascinating questions, I think, uh, as um, somebody who's been working on this for decades, is how this extremely Jewish movement And the earliest evidence we have of it, which is Paul's letters, which are mid-first century, already Paul is addressing a different ethnic audience. And he's just calling them, the the word in Greek is ethne, and you can hear that in our word for ethnicity. And he's, he's using the Jewish term for people who aren't Jewish. He says in Romans chapter one, now I'm talking to you ethne, right? I want to spread the gospel to all the ethne, including to you. Romans. So, he's, he's talking about them specifically as non-Jews, but he's giving them all this very Jewish information. And then we have the Gospel of Matthew, probably written two generations after Paul, so somewhere in the last decades of the first century, early decades of the second century, where Matthew's Jesus deliberately says, you know, go nowhere among the ethne, go nowhere, that's translated as Gentiles often, right? Go nowhere, go only to the, I have been called to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, he, and he, he tells his disciples only to go to other Jews. And again, the information that Paul is giving the ethne, the other translation for the term is pagan. Mm-hmm. Because different people groups in antiquity have different gods. The God of Israel is the God of the Jews, and that's what, how Paul refers to him in Romans 3. But the, the gods of Rome are different gods, and the gods of Athens are another set of gods. And the gods of the Egyptians, non-Egyptians, thought were really weird, but the Egyptians were fine with the Egyptian gods. So, ethnicity, what we think of as ethnic groups, typically had their own gods. What's really unusual about Paul's god, whom he identifies as the god of the Jews, is that Paul makes the claim to non-Jews that his, Paul's Jewish God, is also the God of the pagans. Mm. Is that, do we find that in other places in antiquity where there's a proclamation that a certain God transcends these ethnic boundaries? Different gods are proclaimed by their own followers to be the biggest or the best God in antiquity. It's one of the ways you register your respect and enthusiasm for your own tradition. So, we'll even find in pagan inscriptions, uh, writing in stone, uh, and I'm so glad they did this because archaeologists would be out of the job if they had <laughs> right. um, inscriptions that give a shout out to the god of that location. Pa- um, ancient gods tended to be located with, uh, in two ways. They were located in their own people. They So, you have a divine diaspora once you have different people immigrating. When Jews migrated out of the Jewish homeland and spread throughout the western uh, part of the Roman Empire, going to um, the the edge of the Mediterranean, and their language changes to Greek, um, they're not anxious about being separated from their God, even though they think of their God as living in a special way in Jerusalem. Mm. And other ethnic groups, other than Jews, also could take their gods with them. So, you have the spread of the cult of Isis. Isis is an Egyptian goddess, but there are cults to her, altars dedicated to her, and priests dedicated to Isis. And people could worship Isis even if they weren't 
in Egypt, even though she was particularly associated with Egypt. So you get two points to think about this. You get shout outs saying one God by pagans who are perfectly well aware of the fact that they think that there are many gods. And you also have Jews saying one God and meaning their own God, the God of Israel. What Paul is saying is a particularly Jewish claim. He's telling non-Jews in Rome that his God, the God of the Jews, is also their God. And that their gods, he doesn't say their gods don't exist. Right. He says that their pagan gods are, the word he uses in Greek are, is daimonia, and it's unfortunately translated as demons, which sound a little bit like the way we used to think about bacteria. Yeah. Um, just sort of these little unpleasant um, irregularities that happen in the, in the cosmos. But the word in Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, the word in Greek actually means something like godling, a, a, a lesser god. So he's saying the, he's referring to what is the Bible for him, the book of Psalms in, in Greek, which is the language that Paul knows the Bible by heart in. And he's referring to Psalm 95.5 in Greek that says, the gods of the nations, same word, ethne, the gods of the nations are daimonia. The gods of the nations are little. Okay, so um, the, there's sort of like a cosmopolitan thing going on with Judaism spreading around the Mediterranean it had been for a while, and uh, speaking Greek and being part of Greek culture that really helped set the stage for Paul doing what he did, and that's a very Jewish thing. That's that's what I'm hearing you say. Could we back up a little bit? Because you said earlier, I think something that's so interesting that I know people are going to want to hear more about, how the Jesus movement is fundamentally a Jewish movement. And and let's let's back up to maybe we can just start in riffing a little bit on pre-crucifixion Jesus. That earlier model, that earlier phase, so to speak. Right. Let's let's get some um let's get a timeline going since we're doing we're talking about historical personages. Jesus was born either in minus 4 if you go by one gospel or plus 6 if you go by the Gospel of Luke. So, we don't actually know, the evangelists didn't know exactly what year Jesus was born, but we do know that he was crucified. We have this, again, from the four Gospels that are in the New Testament canon. He was crucified when Pilate was the, the Roman governor and when Caiaphas was the high priest. And we know from, if I were doing my own edition of the New Testament, I would sneak in a fifth quote-unquote gospel, and that would be by the writer, the Jewish writer, Josephus, who is a contemporary with the later gospel writers, and who writes about exactly this type of uh, cosmopolitan Jewish culture, without which it's impossible to imagine the spread of, of what will become Christianity. And he is a Jewish writer, right? And he is a Jewish writer. He also, his, his dad, I mean, he's, he's a from a priestly family. His father would have been serving in the temple in Jerusalem uh, when Jesus went there to celebrate Passover. Hmm. So, that's how close Josephus is. Hmm. How yeah. close the gospel writers are. Right. That's so, and, pretty, in terms of ancient evidence, it doesn't get much better. Yeah, that, and so, how does he help? How does Josephus help us uh, maybe get a, get that timeline that you're talking about. Okay, so we know from the dates that Josephus gives in his two histories, he writes something called the Jewish War, which is about the war against Rome, fought in uh, the Galilee and Judea between 66 and 73, the fall of Masada, and, and Jerusalem and the temple uh, are destroyed in the year 70. Jesus dies sometime between... 26 and 36, and for different reasons, people have more or less settled, toggled between the year 30 and the year 33 for the crucifixion. So, according to the Gospel of John, Jesus is not yet 50 years old, but we all think of him as 33 because our, our imaginations about him have been shaped by traditions of Western art, right? So, we think right. of him as somebody in his 30s, but in fact, there's 
there's no real way to tell exactly when he was born. So it's uh, hard to know exactly. I, I let myself think of him as in his early thirties cause I can't, that's, you know, I'm a, I'm from Western culture and I can't help it, but I, we don't actually know. So, but let's say Jesus dies in the year 30 and I like using the timeline suggested by the gospel of John, which is different from the timeline suggested by Mark and followed by Matthew and Luke who, who use Mark as one of their sources. And according to Mark, Jesus, during his public mission, goes up to Jerusalem only once. Mm-hmm. According to John, Jesus is in Jerusalem more than he's in the Galilee. And John mentions a sequence of Jewish holidays where it ends up, which is sort of like playing the accordion. The, the, Jesus is up for um, the fall holidays. Jesus is up for what will become Hanukkah. Uh, Jesus is up in Jerusalem for uh, two different Passovers. So the Gospel of John gives more time to uh, for the Jesus movement to expand. So I'd say Jesus's public mission begins after his uh, immersion in the Jordan by John the Immerser, also known as John the Baptist. Jesus goes out on the road in Judea, as the Gospel of John says, as well as in the Galilee, as the Synoptic Gospels uh, emphasize. I should say synoptic means the scene together gospels. And it's because if, if you start reading Matthew first and then you read Mark, by the time you get to Luke, you think, I've seen this movie already. <laughs> it's, it's because they're, they, they all tell the same basic story. The Gospel of John is a different type of literature. Anyway, so uh, Jesus gets on the road with his own mission in 27. Uh, Passover of the year 30, he's crucified. Sometime shortly thereafter, some of the people who were followers of his begin to have experience of his presence. I, I like to put it that way because it's it's hard, again, to... Paul doesn't give us visual detail. Uh, and in fact, half the time, or more than that, Paul talks about Christ being, quote, in which is interesting, which means Christ is, is they're, not waiting, they're not waiting for, Jesus isn't absent just because he's dead. For the people who are followers of Christ, and that's where I'd make the transition. The identification of Jesus as the Messiah must have happened before his death, or Pilate wouldn't have killed him in the way he does. But the bigger claim that he was Messiah, and it must have driven the Romans crazy if they were paying attention, was after he was killed because of some of his followers having this experience of his presence. And it's at that point that you get the movement spreading within late Second Temple Judaism. Paul himself isn't part of this movement yet until, if we look at the letter to, that he writes to the Galatians, which is probably, I, I'm, I keep saying mid-first century. The letters we have from Paul were all probably written between 50 and 60. And if that sounds like a, a guess, that's exactly what it is. We don't <laughs> have faith. But that zone, so he, by the time we have Paul's letters, this movement has been spreading and is still spreading within synagogues. And we know from what Paul says that he's working through synagogue networks himself. And that's where how the movement ends up interesting to pagans, because one of the places a pagan would go in a Greco-Roman city would be the synagogue. That's the only place in town where you get to hear Bible stories in Greek, because in the minus second century, Western Jewish populations, Jews travel with their scriptures with them, and they translated it into Greek. So by the year minus 200, we have uh, probably most of what we think of as the Old Testament um, the, in the Greek language. And if that hadn't happened, this is the Twilight Zone transition in our conversation. If the Bible hadn't been translated into Greek by Jews in the in the minus second century, Christianity never could have happened. Mm-hmm. By translating the Bible into Greek, 
it's, it's Greek is the English of antiquity. What they do is put Jewish Western populations, put Bible stories out on a kind of international frequency by translating the Bible into Greek. And we know um, from inscriptions and we know from grouchy pagan culture critics who don't like other pagans doing this, that plenty of pagans like to hear Bible stories. And they did. They were welcomed into Jewish synagogue diaspora communities and they would listen to the, this is why Paul can give his ex-pagan pagan audiences, his ex-pagan non-Jewish audiences, all this Jewish information he's right. giving them. Yeah. Because they are, you know, he's saying Christ is the son of David and they're going, oh, I know that story. Mm-hmm. And they did. Yeah. But there was only one place for them to know that story. And that's why I haven't gone to a, syn- a Greek speaking synagogue. Stay tuned for more Bible for Normal People. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double-action combination of prescriptive-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Hey, normal people. Are you liking what you're hearing? Then you can support this podcast for as little as $1 per month. Head on over to the handcrafted Patreon site at Patreon.com slash The Bible for Normal People. Not liking what you're hearing? Become part of the producers group to provide feedback on what we can do better. Head on over to that same handcrafted Patreon site at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. Don't forget, supporters get access to neat bonus stuff. Videos, posts, a Slack community. Producers get all of that, and they get to provide feedback directly to the podcast. Speaking of producers, I'd like to give a shout out to a few of them. John R. Hawkins, you're awesome. Sean Bloom, incredible. Joel Beebe, amazing. Hannah Paxton, fantastic. Tracy Roberts, wonderful. Jeff Paulus, marvelous. Aaron Brown, no comparison. And Dan Dietz, spectacular. Thanks. You all are certainly a special part of this podcast. It's folks like you that help ensure this podcast is error-free and Jeet and Parrot don't make mistakes. Now, back to the podcast. So maybe I can summarize what I'm I'm hearing. What I'm hearing you say is that there, and I would put it maybe in overly simplistic, but there's the Greek language that goes out before 
the message of Jesus, you know, several hundred years, a few hundred years at least. And then there is the the going out of uh, Jews who are no longer late located in Jerusalem, but have, have now spread out in, in other areas, and they take with them their stories and their scriptures in Greek, and they set up these synagogues, and they're starting to influence the surrounding peoples with these stories. And that's sort of the groundwork for Paul. They're living in the diaspora, and it's only gradually that the translation occurs, because mm-hmm. it's only once they lose... Hebrew or Aramaic as their spoken vernacular, that they need to have the Bible translated into Greek. Mm-hmm. And that puts it, um, and I think for a lot of our listeners, this is going to put an interesting spin on maybe having to reconsider a misconception that Paul is, you know, Paul is saying, oh, Judaism, who needs that? Now we have Jesus. That might have fallen on deaf ears. Even with the ethne, with the so-called pagan community, which again, it sort of brings me back. How? Let's just talk more about this. Let's talk more about how this early movement is so just deeply a part of this wonderfully diverse. And, and, and maybe even a sense fluid Jewish culture of the time of that first century and maybe a little bit before. Uh, because again, as, as I said, I mean, Jared and I, we've experienced this. I'm sure you have too in all your speaking that it's just sort of assumed that Jesus and Paul, they're just replacing the tradition with something very, very different. But there are all sorts of things I imagine we can point to in the New Testament itself that really it won't work if we have that kind of an assumption. Well, you're absolutely right. And one of the most Jewish things, in fact, it's it's idiosyncratically Jewish that Paul made as a condition of um, ethne becoming part of the, we use the word, uh, it's translated often as church, but that's a little anachronistic for the middle of the first century, the word ecclesia actually means assembly or the congregation. And that is a very Greek Greco-Roman word, right? That's, it's, Greco-Roman. it's what yeah. you use for town councils, what you use for government meetings. Some of the time I live in a 4,000 person town in New Hampshire, and if we were speaking ancient Greek, we'd be calling the town council the ecclesia, which, um, so it, it has a different taste than translating it as church, right? So Paul's saying to these ex-pagans, You can be part of the community and be baptized, right? Be immersed into the death and resurrection of Jesus. But there is, this doesn't come for free. There's a great big condition. And that condition is you can't worship your own gods anymore. You absolutely cannot make. And now, what does that mean to worship? What that means is, you know, the way Jesus and Paul would have worshipped the God of Israel meant um, animal sacrifice. That's how you get, that's the only way to get the main course at a Passover Seder is by sacrificing a lamb at the temple in Jerusalem. That's why Jesus was down in Jerusalem for, I think, several different um, Passovers. But that's also a normal way to show respect to any God in Mediterranean antiquity. And what Paul is saying, and Remember, Jews are the only population in the Greek-speaking diaspora who would be trying to avoid sacrificing before images of other gods. Everybody knew, because we how do I know this? Because pagans complain about it. It was considered disrespectful that Jews were, in fact, Jews would be accused of the word we translate as atheism, which in antiquity doesn't mean you don't believe in, uh, you believe that there is no God. What it means is, uh, you're not worshiping the right gods. So, Jews would be accused of atheism because their Greek-speaking pagan neighbors noticed that when there was a civic festival, which involved sacrifices to the gods that were looking, this is a security issue too, the gods that were looking over the well-being of that particular diaspora city, Jews wouldn't, some Jews would not be part of the sacrificing, or they wouldn't buy meat uh, that had been uh, generated by killing an animal in front of what Jews called idols, right? But which um, 
if you're an ancient pagan, the statue itself isn't the god, but the statue is a place where, if you think of it as closing an electrical circuit, if you sacrifice an animal in front of a statue of a god, the smell of the sacrifice calls the god down. So the god kind, it's like a transistor. A statue is like a transistor for a pagan god. And by sacrificing it, that's how you close that circuit. Exactly the same uh, physics of respect is going on in the Jerusalem temple, except that, and everybody knows about this because people knew that Jews were weird. There's no statue of the Jewish God at the Mm -hmm. Jewish temple. How weird is that? Mm -hmm. Well, in antiquity, that's really weird. And that's what Paul is saying to his pagan, ex-pagan listeners, that they cannot, I don't care how good that hamburger is, you can't eat that anymore, right? If it's going to scandalize somebody else in the assembly, you've, uh, and you certainly can't go to the temple and sacrifice, show respect to your own gods anymore. You can only show respect to my God. Is God the God of the Jews only? No, he's also the God of the nations. It's such a Jewish thing to be telling people who really shouldn't have to be worried about not sacrificing to their own gods, and yet people sign on. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And that means that they, uh, like your listeners, have a good kind of helicopter tour sense of the contours of biblical stories, because Paul's saying Jesus is the son of David, and they know who David is. Uh, he talks about the covenant with Abraham in some of his letters. He, he talks about the covenant with Abraham and circumcision, they know about this. He, uh, Paul talks about, um, he gives a list of the gifts that God has given uh, the Jewish people, and he lists the word, it, 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 it sounds so beige in English. The wording, he says, among the, these special privileges, this is in Romans 9, 4 through 5, and remember Paul speaking in Greek to other Greek speakers who are not Jews. He's saying what God gives is the, the sonship, Israel is the, quote, son of God, uh, and that's a, a scriptural commonplace. Uh, God is always kind of patting the nation of Israel on the head and saying, you're my firstborn son. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have three girls, by the way. I think he's saying you're my firstborn child. But that's, he's <laughs> actually not. Uh, he's saying it is male-gendered. Um, anyway, um, and he says that to, to them, my kinsman, Israel, uh, says Paul, belongs the doxa, which is the, a Greek word that gets translated in our Revised Standard versions as the glory. And glory sounds like this nice divine attribute, sort of shininess or shimmeriness mm-hmm. or something. But it actually translates, this is where knowing ancient languages is very cool. Um, it translates, doxa translates the Hebrew word kavod. And what that is from in Jewish uh, scriptures is uh, the divine presence. It actually mm-hmm. means the presence of God, it's, which is a glorious thing. But it, it actually is, it's like uh, the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus is scolding somebody. He's always, I think it's usually the Pharisees in this part of the story. And uh, in chapter 23, uh, Jesus says, don't swear uh, he who swears by uh, the altar swears by the temple and by him who lives in it, meaning the God of Israel. So, doxa, when Paul, who's not an ex-Jew, Paul, as far as Paul is concerned, is a super-Jew, and he says so. Um, he, he says that God's glory is one of the things that his God has given uh, to the temple, and you don't get that sense from English. And the other thing that Paul praises, this always comes as shocking news to my Protestant students, uh, the other word is translated as worship in English, very beige. The word in Greek is litreia. We're getting more color now in the word, and what it actually refers to is the Hebrew avodah, which is the word for sacrifice, animal sacrifice. So, Paul is listing the cult of animal sacrifice that is performed exclusively in Jerusalem to the God of Israel as one of the the dignities that God has given to his people, and he's calling them my kinsmen in this passage. So, this this is such a Jewish download 
to be giving to these pagans. And the only way they were prepared for this is for two centuries prior, going out in the English of antiquity, are they, hey, there's this, they, Jews are weird. I know they're weird, says one pagan to another, but they have this really big, nice place downtown and they tell fabulous stories about this amazing God. <laughs> But, oh, I don't speak Hebrew. I don't. I don't know Aramaic. No, no, no. They're in Greek. Come on. Yeah. And right. <laughs> so that's been that's been going on. And that's if it hadn't been for that, I don't know what we'd be talking about. Right. Right. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Well, um, as, as you're saying this, Paula, this is, you know, a couple of things. One, it's a good reminder for people how this, this wonderfully rich, complex world that Paul lived in, what he does and says makes, it makes a lot of sense. There's a setting for it that's there that's almost waiting for the, the kinds of tactics or methods or language that Paul uses. A question that always comes up, and you know this question very well, is how, let, let's use Paul's language, how is his gospel distinct from the Jewish tradition, if at all? I know there are misconceptions about that as well, but he has some opposition, it seems like, you know, at least in Galatians and maybe behind the scenes a little bit in Romans. But, you know, what, what is it that might be distinct? I mean, all, all religious movements have a distinctive nature, right? So, what, what's distinctive about this very Jewish-rooted movement vis-a-vis -vis the Jewish tradition? Um, what we know, and this is, again, one of the most Jewish things about this movement after the crucifixion is the earliest evidence we have, which is some 20 years after the crucifixion, Paul's letters, the, the Jews within the movement who are taking the good news, right, the Evangelion, which is what we as Anglo-Saxon speakers um, say is gospel, what, what they're doing is they're already fighting with each other about what the right way to give this message is. Mm -hmm. While all of them are expecting Jesus to manifest publicly 
and and what he does, and this is where all this Davidic language, David isn't um, a programming geek in Jewish tradition. David is a warrior and a, a warrior king as well as a poet. And so when to call Jesus the son of of David, who is going to raise the dead. And this is what these, you know, I'm making up this number, but that's okay because we don't have any numbers. Let's say 50 Jewish guys are giving this message, and Paul is one of them, uh, to different pagans who are hanging around Greek-speaking synagogues out in the diaspora, and they're fighting with each other about what the right way to do it is. So Paul is fighting with other Jews within this the Christ movement, let's call it that to distinguish it from the period before the crucifixion, those of Christ, Paul says. Paul's having disputes with other Jewish missionaries to pagans who are also insisting that the pagans to join the movement have to stop worshiping their own gods. Some of these people are also saying, you actually, if you want to worship the Jewish God, you should convert fully there is no word for conversion, but you should turn mm-hmm. fully. And gentlemen, this means circumcision, which is really not going to fly in Greco-Roman culture because <laughs> you, people spend so much time um, in public naked. I mean, one of the great things, what have the Romans done for us? I want to give a shout out to the Romans who can be the bad guys in this, uh, in this story. Um, the Romans created aqueducts, which enabled sanitation and they built baths public baths and if you didn't have that water technology that the romans mastered you couldn't have big concentration of human populations because of disease so it's and everybody goes to the bath. we have stories about in in uh rabbinic texts about rabbis going and using the roman baths because that's how you stay clean is by using roman baths which meant that Jews and pagans were naked in public in these baths in cities all throughout the Western diaspora. And Greco-Roman culture looked at circumcision as uh, a mutilation, and there are all sorts of Jewish jokes about Jews that pagans tell each other. Um, Apella is a word that means, um, it's a common Greek name, but if you break it down into a, means without, and Pella uh, leather skin. It, it's a joke. It's a Jewish joke name that means circumcision. Some of the apostles of Jesus, who, I'm sorry, of Christ, who are going to these ex-pagan pagan assemblies, are saying to the gentlemen, "You know, you really should be circumcised." And Paul is saying, "Absolutely not. You don't have to be circumcised. You just have to do what I'm telling you to do." And then Paul gives a whole list of what he thinks they should do instead. So the fight is not between Paul and Judaism, because what Paul is actually telling these pagans is a kind of Judaism for Gentiles. You, know, you don't have to be, gentlemen, you don't have to be circumcised, but, and then the, here comes a list, no more toga parties, um, monogamous marriages, First uh, Corinthians 7, uh, no sex within marriage if you can uh, manage that. And if you can't, well, that's not a sin, but um, I wish everybody were as I myself am, mm-hmm. uh, says Paul. And Paul thinks Paul's fabulous. Um, he has no self-esteem problems. It's interesting. So he's, yeah. um, so he's t- <laughs> no, no buying hamburgers at the local temple, um, no uh, going to prostitutes, no, I mean, it's all this, this list of ethical um, and ritual behavior, because not sacrificing in front of a statue of your own God is a ritual behavior. It's not an ethical thing. Mm-hmm. Paul is giving Jewish legislation for Gentiles, but he's saying, because Paul's reading Isaiah in Greek, he's saying, this is how I know that I, Paul, am right about what time it is on God's clock. Because the prophet Isaiah said that at the end times, the nations of the world will turn, that's the word that's used, there's conversion as a, as a technical term for changing religions, doesn't exist right. yet. And, mm-hmm. so Pete, and this is Paul's way of saying, we're, Paul is actually Judaizing. He's trying to get pagans to act more like Jews and less like pagans. 
but he's fighting with the other 49 guys who are giving some version of the message too. And he's not fighting with, he's not telling Jews to stop circumcising. He's telling Gentiles not to start. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a um, fascinating way of looking at it. And I, I know that's probably a big jump for some of our listeners to see, you know, the conflicts that Paul has like in Galatians, that in and of itself is a Jewish thing. That's what that's what Jews did, and and it's somewhat analogous to like maybe Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount, at least in chapter five of Matthew. You know, you've heard it said, but I say to you, is not Jesus supplanting the tradition, but participating in that tradition of debate and what's the best way to handle law and things like that? Exactly, they wouldn't if it wasn't important to everybody. The fighting wouldn't be so loud, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's Jesus fighting with other Jews. And uh, which is what Jews did. You're not yeah. doing it the right way. You do, if you want to do it the right way, you, do, you should do it the way I'm doing it. And what's really interesting about chapters five through seven in Matthew is that um, the, those verses that all of us know about, um, you've heard it say, uh, said, don't commit adultery. But I say, if you even look at somebody with lust, a woman with lust in your heart, you for Jesus is making the law more strict. Mm-hmm. He's doing something that in Jewish terminology is called building the fence around the Torah. So, no adultery, don't even, you know, fantasize about it. Right. Uh, no killing, don't even let yourself get angry. I mean, so he's being stricter than the Pharisees, in a sense. Mm-hmm. In that. Yeah. Um, well, maybe one more question. I, th- I know we're, we're sort of winding down here a bit, but again, I'm, I'm thinking of the kinds of things that people would be interested in. And... I want to come back to this issue of what might be distinctive elements, and I think what people would head for pretty quickly, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, is just simply the idea of a Messiah losing, being crucified, and how, how do you? I mean, how do you? How do you talk through that issue? Um, I mean, I just from my point of view, I can't imagine that being. Like in you know common Jewish thinking, oh yeah, of course, obviously, right? That's right. One of, one of the ways to know somebody isn't the Messiah is if he's already dead. That used to be the case anyway. Um, but this particular Jewish movement, uh, because of this this sense of Jesus's presence after his death, nobody's disputing that he was crucified. But what happens? And what does it mean the presence of Jesus? Again, that sounds like a hallmark. Christmas card or something. It's, <laughs> uh, the presence of Jesus gives you, if you're a, a mid-first century person, pagan or Jewish, but part of this movement, it gives you power over spirits. It, give, it enables you to have prophecy. It enables what anthropologists call charismatic behaviors. It, um, people speak in glossolalia, they, uh, it's, which is uh, the tongue of uh, cosmic powers. People can work acts of power, paradoxa. They have, they're, in, they're charismatically empowered, and that's one of Paul's proofs, because the word he uses for that is the word spirit. And spirit for Paul and other first century people, unless they're, you're a very strict Platonist, which means you have at least an MA in philosophy. Platonism is way, way, way high up in the food chain in terms of how people are thinking. Um, what he says is pneuma, spirit, which is this very, very fine stuff. The spirit of Christ actually infuses into the person who's been immersed into Christ. And even if that person hasn't been circumcised, but if he's doing everything else Paul is telling him to do, he should be empowered as well. And that's how Paul knows Paul's right. The idea of taking a message about the Jewish God to non-Jews had obviously occurred to Hebrew-speaking ancient Jews, or Isaiah wouldn't be talking about, the at the end of time, all the nations turning and worshiping the God of Israel. What's different about this is it's, it's the message of Isaiah and a radioactive moment of conviction that the, the Spirit proves that Paul is right and that all the nations are going to turn. And this is what he says uh, in his letters. I, what's interesting is by the time we get the Gospels, Jesus starts in 27, he's dead by 30, Paul joins the mission probably, according to Galatians chapter 1, probably in Damascus, 
So it's already spreading to pagan cities in the diaspora. Um, he writes his letters around the year 50. The temple is destroyed by because of this insurrection in the year 70. And it's only after 70 that we get the first, probably the first gospel, the gospel of Mark. I'm making this up maybe in the year 75, because Marx says, and he puts it into Jesus's um, uh, speech on the Mount of Olives, looking at the Temple Mount. Mark says that when you see the temple destroyed, that's how you know that it's when the Son of Man is going to come back. And then 20 years down the line, so if he writes in 75, somewhere between 90 to 100, Luke and John and Matthew and Josephus, writing and thinking in Greek, are, um, are telling stories where they, uh, obviously the evangelists about Jesus, Josephus giving the historical context for those stories. So the stories we have about Jesus are all written after the destruction of the temple. Paul is the only one we have who's, who writes before the destruction of the temple, and he is expecting Jesus to come back in a public way. Jesus has already come back in a private way within these assemblies by his spirit empowering them. But the public manifestation of Jesus is going to be the resurrection of the dead. And Paul says there's no mistaking uh, what that's going to look like. Mm. Wow. that's a. I think that's a great way to, to wrap up just with that, that timeline. And I think that's going to be a lot for people to chew on, even just that understanding of the, of the progression of thought and how that all came to be. If, if people wanted to dive more into the topics like this, do you have, what, what are some places that they can find some of your work and what are the books that you've written on this or have coming out? Maybe a little commercial here on, on some of the things that you do around this. I put out a book a year or so ago. Um, once you're finished, when you're writing a book, all you think about is finishing it. Once you finish <laughs> the book, you can't remember what happened. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's a book called When Christians Were Jews, The First Generation. And that's where I put, I start out with Jesus and I go through to the destruction of the temple. So it's exactly what's happening in this movement between the years. It was such a hope-filled generation. What's happening between the years 30 and 70? And that's the, that's the, it's like an, an unstable atom that is shooting out all this light. They're so convinced that things are going to change radically for the good in that generation itself. And instead it ends mm -hmm. with the destruction of the temple. So, but it's a great, it's a great story. And if, if I could, uh, people can get this on Amazon. They can, um, uh, I don't know, whatever people do. I don't read electric books. I still read paper books, but, um, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's such an important story because it's, it's, you know, it's the 21st century and we're still talking about this stuff. And still learning. And still learning. And still changing. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. It was a fascinating discussion. I think there's a lot to chew on here. Okay. Thank you, Paula. Yep. Okay. Bye. Be well. Bye. Stay healthy. All right, folks. Thanks for listening to this episode. And if you have a chance, remember to, to check out Paula's book, When Christians Were Jews, The First Generation, really readable and informative, and just you'll walk away a lot smarter from reading it. And if this is your kind of thing, if you liked this conversation, you'd like to dig into everyday life, understanding the origins of these things, we have this course uh, with our friend Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott, who is an expert in archaeology and everything around the everyday life in ancient Israel. We have a course by that title. Starts October 6th, 8.30 p.m. Eastern time, you can go to our website, thebiblefornormalpeople.com, and sign up there. I think it'll be a really good time. Yeah, it's awesome course. I can't wait. Thanks, everyone. See ya. Thanks, as always, to our team. Executive producer Megan Kamick, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, marketing wizard Reed Lively, transcriber and community champion Stephanie Spate, and web developer Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and all of us here at the Bible for Normal People, thanks for listening. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? 
That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.